You're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. State lawmakers ended the legislative session yesterday, patting themselves on the back for funding a billion dollars for Native Hawaiians. They have bolstered the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and provided an infusion of millions to the Department of Hawaiian Homelands to get people off the wait list and onto homestead land. Lawmakers are proud to have checked off their priorities for dealing with the homeless crisis and helping working families. It has been a difficult time during this pandemic, but the unexpected surplus meant the House and the Senate could be more financially impactful. We talked to Colin Moore, director of the Public Policy Center at the University of Hawaii this morning, about how he would grade their work. I think they did well. They passed a lot of great legislation. You know, the huge amount of money that's going to DHHL, increased funding for OHA, raising the minimum wage, and even putting a, a fair bit of money away for the state's rainy day fund, the hurricane relief fund. That's all great. But to some extent, they were able to do this because they had $2 billion surplus, more money than they thought they were going to have. So if I'm grading them, I'd say that they did well, but they were sort of playing the game on easy mode. And with all 76 legislators up for re-election, you know, this was the time to fund their priorities to get things done so they can send out those mailers and remind their constituents of everything they did. So, But, but that's not to say that there wasn't good legislation passed um, across the board. So I guess I, know, I understand that Senate president gave them an A. I think I'd give them a, a B plus. Oh, you're a tough grader. <laughs> Well, Senate President you know, Ron Kochi, I think the first uh, neighbor island uh, Senate president, you know, we've heard for years how, you know, it's, it was time for the neighbor island, you know, lawmakers uh, to take their place, you know, in leadership. And we have seen that. Uh, but we did also see a neighbor island lawmaker fall from the graces. You know, we had the scandal, the bribery scandals with uh, Senator Kalani English, Representative Ty Cullen. Uh, and so that leaves a mark as well. It does. This session really is clouded by that enormous public corruption scandal. You know, and I want to emphasize that this is, a, I mean, even by national standards, this is a major corruption scandal. And I, I know that this is really at the top of voters' minds now, along with their normal concerns like affordability, you know, access to housing. This fear that there really is a high amount of corruption in our, you know, in our government institutions. I mean, and, and you know, there have been concerns about that as well connected at the city level. So I'm not going to be surprised if you see a lot of candidates trying to address that, you know, this time around when they're running for re-election to say that they're, to, to emphasize their concern for ethics. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. And I know there were some attempts to improve the transparency and to make sure we have ethics training. I'm not really sure how well those bills fared, but they really did try to make an effort to say, yes, we acknowledge this was very bad, these indictments, and uh, we cannot continue in this manner. But they did, but at the same time, what English and Cullen did already was illegal. I mean, no amount of ethics training will tell you that you can't take cash bribes for votes. You know, I, I do think at its root is sort of a cultural problem in the legislature. I mean, a certain amount of arrogance that would lead to legislators thinking that they were almost untouchable. And to my mind, the only way to 
really solve that problem is more challenges. I mean, the solution really is more democracy, and, and legislators have to feel a little less comfortable in their seat. And, you know, I hope during this election season, we're seeing a little bit of this. You know, I'd like to see more where there are more challenges to sitting incumbents. We are probably going to see um, new faces pop up in both the Senate and the House because, you know, there are a number of uh, lawmakers that are retiring and an opportunity for um, lawmakers to move up, to move into different houses or to look elsewhere. There are also council members that are eyeing seats across the street just simply because, you know, of term limits. That's right. Um, so there's, there's a number of senior legislators who are retiring, folks from the House who are trying to move up to the Senate. You know, part of this is the usual musical chairs we see. I, I don't think, I don't see as a result of this any dramatic shifts in the power structure right now. You know, a lot of them are folks who been in the legislature for a while and are trying to move from the House to the Senate, for example. Well, you know, and we did have the bombshell this week where um, Mayor Kirk Caldwell said he would not be seeking to be governor of this state, and that has changed some things. Everybody's speculating about Kai Kaheli, whether he vacates his post, and then there are a number of state lawmakers that are looking to jump into that. But uh, certainly it is musical chairs at this juncture when everybody's seats are up. That's right. And, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about this congressional race, you know, which if Congressman Kahele runs for governor, you know, is, you know, we've had so much turnover in our congressional delegation, which is historically relatively unusual for Hawaii. I mean, we've had a lot more stability in the past. And, you know, I, I think that that's going to be one of the issues that the candidates run on um, th those folks who are planning to run for that CD2 district, which is to say, uh, I really do want to be in Congress and I want to stay there, you know, and I want to rise in seniority. Everybody's watching to see yeah, what will happen uh, and who actually files papers, you know, in a month when the, when the deadline is up. But uh, is there anything that uh, you're looking at as maybe something that the lawmakers didn't do this session? I guess I should say that they took a few hard votes this session. The bail reform was a hard vote. In other words, there were people who voted against it. Um, there was a lot of criticism uh, about that bill. You know, the, the other bill that interestingly seemed to generate a lot of controversy was the flavored vape ban. And that's something that the ledge has been trying to address for, for years and years and years. You know, and this particular exemption for tobacco products that received FDA approval was really the sticking point, particularly for some of the health advocates who were the original ones who advocated for that bill. Those were two of the harder votes they took this session. You know, the other stuff was a little bit easier um, because there was so much money to spend on these priorities. So, you know, there were there were less there were fewer choices that had to be made. Well, I just think with the bail reform issue, a lot of people were surprised that they didn't come up with funding for a new jailhouse. That's right. I, I think that, you know, that was one of the priorities that you could have imagined passing uh, during a session where there was so much extra money. Um, you know, again, that, you know, that particular issue, I think, has is, is long been pretty controversial, too. I mean, questions about, you know, should we just change the way our criminal justice system works and that would solve the need for a, a large jail? But I think others would say, well, even, you know, our current jail is falling apart, and so it's time to build something newer and safer for inmates. Right, because we don't want to be under a federal consent decree like we it, have in the exactly. past. Exactly. Well, okay, so there's work that was left undone <laughs> that they will have to tackle, I guess, during the next session. I mean, it remains to be seen what the governor does with some of these bills, if, if he thinks there's enough concern to veto anything. You know, that's a good question, and I haven't, I haven't got the sense that 
too many of these bills are particularly vulnerable. You know, I, I talked about the flavored vape bill. I think that actually might be one because there was so much controversy. I don't see too many of the others as really being a target for Governor Ige's veto. We'll uh, let the governor do his vetting and then uh, uh, see what comes out uh, at the end of the day. The, the deck is going to get reshuffled. Voters will decide who they believe should be put in and who should be uh, ousted <laughs> come election day. And then we'll have a whole new game to play. The game isn't going to change all that much. We have a pretty stable political class here in Hawaii. So there'll be a little bit of reshuffling, but I don't think there's going to be any big changes that come out of this election, particularly at the legislature. Okay. Well, we can always set our sights on an A or an A+. plus. <laughs> But we'll, we'll see how well they do. But thank you so much, Colin. Sure, my pleasure. Good talking with you, Catherine. Okay, aloha. That was Colin Moore, Director of Public Policy Center at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, who we talked to this morning. You know, for the last couple of days, we have been taking a closer look at a proposed development out in West Oahu. Kamehameha Schools owns land in Waipahu near the bus facility and the rail station and has been talking about building a mixed-use community with two 20-story towers. Height is a big issue because the community decided under the TOD, the Transit Orient Development, and the zoning only allows for a six-story structure to keep the integrity of the historic plantation town. We talked to a couple of area lawmakers about the dilemma. Representative Henry Aquino and City Councilman Brandon Elefante. We hear first from Aquino about the project they call Kiavalao. Well, you know, I think this is a, um, a healthy problem to have. Obviously, we need affordable housing, you know, workforce housing, senior housing, and that's what this project provides. And there are concerns with height, though, and that has been well documented in various meetings, neighborhood board meetings and other community meetings. The Waipahu community was, I think, the first to adopt the uh, Transit Orient Development uh, District, you know, and work on their plan and in good faith set their vision. Yes, they have. And uh, they feel that this project is uh, um, a little more than what they expected, well, three times the limit of 60 feet. But again, I think uh, this is good conversations to have to, uh, to try to address the concerns. You know, KS and the developer, you know, spelled out their plans with the, mm-hmm. the three different buildings, you know, the senior housing, you know, young families, and then also just regular, you know, just low-income housing, right, for the, for the workforce. Yes, absolutely. And those are areas that are very much needed. Uh, Waipau can help play a role in addressing some of the statewide needs for these uh, rental units. You know, I feel that the footprint um, that they're looking to build on is relatively large. So, you know, there could be creative ways to meet the 500 plus units, but maybe not the height that they're planning for at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's close to four acres. So you think that there's room for some compromise? I mean, that's the hope. And, And that's my hope, you know, to strike that balance, that medium to, you know, find that sweet spot uh, where we can flatten it a little bit, but yet again, you know, provide the needed units. And we did see, you know, what uh, KS did with uh, kind of the revitalization of Haleiwa 
You know, they mm-hmm. kept the character of that town, you know, and they, there was some give and take, I think, on both sides there. And I think that's the same map that I think this community of Waipahu is looking forward towards is a, you know, a healthy conversation, hopefully some concessions and just a path forward. That'll be beneficial for the whole entire community. What do you hope to see happen, you know, with the West Lock Station and the development that uh, is slated to go around there? Because that's a little bit higher density. Yeah, and I think it's the same concerns that uh, we've been hearing. I think, you know, again, we'd like to see a, a good, healthy conversation to, again, to provide, you know, needed units uh, that'll benefit, you know, those that really need, you know, housing in our communities. We hope that we can find that, that and strike that 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 balance where we can provide the amount of units needed while at the same time addressing concerns and just providing opportunities for our um, community members. There's concern about traffic in the Waipahu community and and, and mm-hmm. hoping that they can kind of redirect, you know, some of that congestion. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think that's uh, uh, something that will come up later in the process. You know, for the developer, KS, and others working very closely with the project, they're going to have to come up with a very um, good plan to take for public comment. KS and the developer did talk about, you know, addressing some of the concerns that the families have about crime. That's some of the, um, the pros uh, with a project like this to activate certain areas that haven't been updated for, for a good period of time. And so that's the that's the pros of this kind of project is to activate areas to bring people to the area, uh, residents and visitors alike. So I think that's one of the good things that come with a project like this. Honolulu Prosecutor Steve Alm, you know, talked about mm-hmm. uh, they're really working to beef up the weed and seed programs that they started, you know, many years ago. Waipahu, I think, being one of those areas. Yes, and and that, that's our hope is that we can find these uh, public-private partnerships to really keep our communities safe and just provide opportunities for growth in our community, whether it be economic growth, uh, social economic growth, um, you know, and just really bringing people together. Waipahu historically has always been a gathering place uh, for the area of Oahu in that portion of Oahu. So we're really hoping that you know we can kind of get back to that. This provides tremendous opportunities. Again, there are concerns that uh, need to be addressed uh, in order for us to move forward. Uh, we feel that this is a very good opportunity to have those discussions and to really address some of the ongoing concerns and challenges that we've been facing in that area. That was by Pahu Representative Henry Aquino. We also spoke with Honolulu City Council Member Brandon Elefante, who represents part of Waipahu. He was involved in the TOD zoning on his first year on the council. He's terming out, but has been involved in the community meetings around the Kiavalau project. A lot of folks that have been longtime Waipahu residents felt that they wanted to still keep their community character. Being that it's an old plantation village, a lot of folks in this area felt that they wanted to preserve and protect that character, but also open to the fact that rail was coming through their community and also to open to the idea of potentially for mixed-use development, which is why in the rezoning efforts, um, you don't see a big height or dense. Uh, people in Waipahu don't want to be like communities in Kaka'ako because they're different, um, and it's just a different community. KS says it may be a year before they actually go in for the permits for their project, and they're using this time to try and get the word out uh, about what they've got planned and see if they can overcome uh, some of the issues about height. Yes, so they've actually been uh, appearing before the Waipahu Neighborhood Board. They had a town hall. I've sat in in most of those meetings and just 
as an observer, listening and also meeting with Kamehameha Schools and High Ridge Costa and their development team to hear their project proposal and what they're proposing. I think the merits of it are there in terms of you know, affordable rentals for seniors right off of Hikimoi Street, the Waipahu Transit community. There is a dire need for housing, definitely, not just for this community, however, for our entire state. And, you know, we need to build more units, but we also need to build it in a manageable way. So I'm not opposed to the project whatsoever. I just feel that there needs to be more time to weigh in, you know, some of the concerns and see if we can find some sort of middle ground as to how we move forward. One point that I did hear is that they are leery of this 20-story twin tower idea because the other station, the Westlock station, allows for more density and height in up to nine stories. So they're worried if KS gets the okay on this one, that the other landowners will go up even higher uh, beyond what the TOD restrictions are. Yeah, and that's a good point, Catherine. And I, I can see where some of the community could be speculating and have that concern. You know, as a resident, if I didn't know anything uh, whatsoever, and I saw this project and it you know, exceeded height limit or density or was a little different, uh, I would have some questions for sure. I think also at the same time when we're going through the early stages of the process, uh, the community felt that more height and density was more geared towards that Westlock station um, down closer to Evo by Queens West uh, rather than the Poala station, which is the Waipahu Transit Station. And, you know, developers, you know, they're always looking for ideas and ways on how they can bring more housing in our local economy and to provide for that. And so one of that ways to do it is through what is called the 201H process, which is a section of the state state law, which allows developers to build affordable housing to get tax credits. But it comes at a cost, and that cost uh, comes to taxpayers in a way where we're waiving fees, building permit fees in order to get height and density to produce more affordable units so that projects can pencil out as well, we've been told from the developers. And what about the notion that we could build more affordable housing if we used prefab materials and strike that balance with the construction industry, you know, and their concerns about jobs? But I mean, if we are in a crisis, that maybe we need to explore that idea before we just go full guns with, you know, higher density and higher building limits. Yeah, and I think all options are on the table. I, I, I know that there's been some areas that have had prefab projects, construction projects that they've done. I believe one of them was the homeless community village, Kauiki Village in San Island. I believe that was one. And then the Westlock Modular was another one uh, out in Eva. But I do believe that we do need to still keep construction within our economy, especially for our working middle class and building more of that, especially as our economy approaches inflation and what we have to do with high rising costs. And it's just expensive to build. That's what I've been hearing as a theme from developers and project teams, that construction materials and building has become more expensive, which has definitely passed on the cost to project and the project itself and also for those that might be purchasing or buying into some of these new units. It is tough, definitely, and you know that's why people elect us to office to make these tough decisions, to really weigh in the pros, the cons, how this will benefit the community, how it will impact the community, 
and looking at the history and nature of the community and also working with my fellow colleagues, uh, whether it be state elected officials, community stakeholders, the Waipahu Board, and the project team. That was Honolulu City Council member Brandon Elefante talking to us about Kiawalao, a mixed-use low-income housing project which includes two 20-story towers in an area that the Waipahu community envisioned with a height limit of just six stories. Elefante won't be on the council when the project comes up for a city vote. His term is up, and he plans to run for Senate District 16. And Representative Henry Aquino, who we heard from earlier, is also running for Senate District 17 in that area as Senator Clarence Nishihara retires. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at a controversy brewing over at Honolulu Hale. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning, Christina. Hi, Catherine. So, yeah, share with our listeners what you discovered about a proposal that they're considering. So, basically, Honolulu City Councilwoman Andrea Tupola is proposing this charter amendment that would um, impose term limits of eight years total, so two four-year terms for council members. Um, and so that's, she says this is part of a larger effort to impose term limits, but the only person who that would impact in this year's election is Ron Menor, who previously served eight years on the council, but is running again in District 8. Um, and what's interesting about that is that Tupola is getting paid by Menor's opponent um, for consulting. She has this side business where she gives political candidates advice, and so she's earning $2,500 a month from this uh, candidate, Keone Simon, while also proposing legislation that would knock Simon's opponent out of the race. Even if he were to win the election, he would be prevented from taking office. Yeah, I mean, that's raising some eyebrows. Like, wait a minute. It is uh, raising some concerns about uh, conflicts of interest and, you know, possible ethics violations. Um, Menor certainly is is feeling that way, um, as well as Sandy Ma at Common Cause Hawaii, the, you know, um, government accountability group. She said this really reeks of a quid pro quo is how she put it. Um, it just doesn't look good at all in her words. Um, but Tupola and Simon both said that they don't think there's anything improper about the situation. Tupola said term limits have been a priority for her for years. And Simon said that uh, he really doesn't have an issue knocking his opponent out of the race, but he didn't have anything to do with the resolution. You know, we, we should probably point out, uh, too, that uh, with reapportionment, a lot of the lines have been um, redrawn, and that is affecting a, a number of people's decisions, you know, where they run. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, what they should seek, uh, uh, you know, when they go before the voters. That's right. Yeah, there's uh, some shifting of the political boundaries. So just to refresh people's memories, this is District 8 currently held um, by Brandon Elefante. Um, the new district would cover Waimalu, Pearl City, Mililani Town and Waipio. Um and there are a couple other candidates in the race. Um, House Minority Leader Val Alkimoto, uh, former city council staffer Charmaine Doran has also pulled papers, and Elefante's aide um, Dion Mesta is also potentially running for the seat. Right. And so as we um, uh, look at this issue on this charter amendment uh, proposal, uh, you know, there's also the question of uh, ethics that's come up. 
Right. So Menor is um, sort of accusing Tupola of having this prohibited conflict of interest in proposing this legislation. Um, that's Whether that is the case is really a matter for the Honolulu Ethics Commission, which doesn't confirm or deny when they get complaints or whether they're investigating something. Um, but in a statement, the Ethics Commission's um, assistant executive director said yesterday that there is sort of some distance between Tupola and the result of this legislation. So Um, She's proposing a resolution to change the city charter, which is like the city constitution. Um, That would have to be approved by a supermajority of the city council and then go to voters at the ballot this November. So only then would these term limits be imposed and potentially block Menor if he were to win the election from taking office. So we could see a situation, hypothetically, where Menor wins the primary in August but can't take office in January, if if voters so choose. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, probably thinking, you know, she should have disclosed this issue uh, before, earlier. Right. That's another thing that he raised. You know, council members, when they do have a conflict of interest, they they can still vote on things um, that pertain to themselves, um, but they are supposed to disclose it. And so Menor said Tupola should have done that. Tupola um, seemed to acknowledge that. And she said that if the resolution does get a hearing, that she'll file a disclosure at that time. And uh, 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 the uh, the uh, candidate uh, that would be running against uh, Menor, I mean, he's not the only one that has mm-hmm. uh, reached out uh, uh, for Tupola for advice, for consulting advice. That's right. She has this side business. Um, uh, there's another candidate on the North Shore, um, Makua Rothman, who is also seeking Tupola's advice. So um, she may be sort of garnering support among these new candidates um, for uh, pursuing the chairmanship. That is yet to be seen. But uh, we know that Tupola is ambitious and does want to be governor someday. So we're yeah. watching her closely. Fascinating issue. But thanks so much. Thank you. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. You can read her full story at civilbeat.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Locke Kelly, author of Shift into Freedom. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the science and practice of open-hearted awareness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Fierce and Fearless. Patsy Takimoto Mink, first woman of color in Congress, is the title of a new biography just put out this month. We talked to her daughter, Wendy Mink, as well as co-author and historian Judy Wu about the book's release. We hear from Wendy first as she pays tribute to the Title IX champion going into this Mother's Day weekend. 
The book was a pretty long time in the making. Probably concretely, I started sort of puttering around uh, the rather massive collection of her papers that are housed at the Library of Congress around 2007-2008. I started to work a little more systematically maybe around 2010-2011. So I was sort of on my way to to try to figure out how to tell her story in a biography. But I kept running up against sort of a problem of not being entirely certain about what voice to use in the narrative. And by that, I mean using the voice of a daughter, making it more of a kind of memoir, or using the voice of a political scientist, which is what I'm trained to do. And as those two sort of pulls and pushes were at war in my psyche, suddenly just from, you know, a gift from the universe landed in Washington, D.C., and her name was Judy. And we got together and exchanged ideas and developed an intellectual relationship, and that was about 2012. And so for the past 10 years, we've been collaborating, working together on this project that culminated in in the book. And Judy Wu happens to be on the line with us from California. Judy, so what was it like, uh, you know, working on this? Because, you know, there's just there's so much information and and you want to, you know, pay homage to to all that she's achieved uh, and what she's done for women. So what was that like for you? Oh, it's been an honor to be able to write about her life. I had known of Patsy Mink but I was looking for a project to work on, and I discovered the Library of Congress website. They were featuring her papers, and as a historian, it's always exciting to know that there's archival materials, but I didn't realize how much materials there were. There are um, about 2,700 boxes, so it's a little bit daunting, but it's been wonderful to be able to collaborate with Wendy. I would go to Washington, D.C., look in the archives, and she lives just down the street. So I would go to her place afterwards and talk to her, and she would say, oh, this is what was going on in our lives. and This is what was happening. And so I so appreciate those conversations. I originally was planning to interview her, um, and we did do a series of interviews. But when I found out that her mother wanted Wendy to write her biography, I just thought that we needed to collaborate. And so it's been a fantastic experience to be to be in partnership together, but also have our distinct voices. Each of the chapters begins with a really moving and powerful vignette from Wendy, and then I, I get to do the historical analysis. Um, and it's been really helpful to have her perspective on what I'm writing so that I, I can do justice to Tatsumink. And Wendy, I don't know, do you have a favorite chapter in the book? My favorite part depends on my mood and the alignment of the stars from day to day. But I do frequently come back to a chapter that deals with my mother's work, her national service in the aftermath of losing the 1976 Senate race. She goes to the State Department as an Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and Scientific Affairs. And after a interesting but brief experience there, goes on to become president of the Americans for Democratic Action. And Judy does a wonderful job juxtaposing the the challenge of working within a very brittle and rigid bureaucracy, the State Department, and then working with grassroots progressive politics in the ADA. And the, re- the result is a, is a fascinating story of sort of two sides of the American political process, really, if you want to step back and look at the big picture. So most of the time I end up sort of landing on that chapter as my favorite. Your mother gave great speeches. You know, I mean, I 
covered her as a city hall reporter when she returned from D.C. and was her council member. I just remember just being in awe of her, you know, after doing all this great work in the nation's capital, coming back home, uh, but still being very passionate about uh, what she believed in, you know, and I remember covering you know her speeches when she when she led the 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 recall for the three Honolulu city councilmen who switched parties and you know was just just so amazed that you know she just figured you know this was wrong and she was just going to make sure that the right thing was done but i don't know do you have any favorite speeches there were so many that were very provocative and evocative. I I remember some of her commencement addresses at high schools, like Roosevelt High School, Kaimaki High School, or whatever, in the 1960s during the height of the Vietnam War. I don't remember the language of it particularly at at this moment, but I do remember being, you know, moved listening to her. Sometimes she had to give those speeches long distance over the telephone because of events that were transpiring on the East Coast. I, I think one one she had to do Kaimaki High School maybe because Robert Kennedy was assassinated and his funeral she wanted to attend its funeral services so she called into Kaimaki and they piped her over the loudspeaker. I remember those speeches. I think Judy has actually memorized certain passages of speeches that speak strongly to her spirit. I don't know, Judy I don't have them memorized, but she was such an amazing speech giver. When I look at film clips, she's so passionate and articulate. And I was just talking about this earlier in the week. She wrote out longhand her speeches. I, you know, when I found something, I, I bullet points or I use the computer, but she wrote out incomplete sentences, pretty much the final form when she, when she um, you know, on, on pads. I think overall, I just love her spirit. Catherine, what you described is exactly right. One of the speeches, that's the name of Kimberly Bassford's documentary about passing ink, is, is entitled Ahead of the Majority. And she talks about the need for political courage, that you can't wait for issues to be popular um, before you support them, that you have to take a stand. And I think that is something that persists throughout her life. I think she also, in addition to being a political leader, she was really interested in educating other people to become active citizens. We quote from her her last speech about Title IX, which was given on the 30th anniversary of Title IX. And she talks about how this is one of the greatest achievements of her political career. But she also emphasized that it's not just a one and done process, that after you pass the law, there's the effort to maintain the law, to maintain the spirit of, of creating change and working towards social justice. And so that all of us have to be vigilant we can't just take these opportunities for granted. And I also really love the period that, that you're describing when you when you covered her. And that was one of my big surprises. I knew more of her legislative achievements when she was in the House of Representatives from 65 to 77 and 1990 to 2002. But that period of her life when she was in between these terms of service, I was just so blown away by the fact that she was just as committed, just as vocal on the Honolulu City Council as she was in the halls of Congress. She was remarkably consistent in her commitment towards transparency, democracy, creating equal opportunities. Um, She's someone who I think we can learn so much from and to look up to. You know, and I think uh, when I pass by the statue there uh, across from Honolulu Hale, you know, it's there in front of the Hawaii State Library, it is really delightful to see 
people discover it and uh, to read the plaque and to, to just, you know, pause and reflect on, you know, what she's done uh, uh, for, you know, for Title IX. Uh, and, you know, today we're still grappling with these issues. You know, you hear of of the, the women's, I think it was the water polo team that, that can't get in the pool uh, and have to do land exercises because they don't have, you know, equal time. You know, the, the girls don't have locker facilities like the boys do. You know, we're still dealing with that here in Hawaii, even after all this time has passed. I don't know, Wendy, you want to chime in here about the progress that we have made and, and we still have far to go? Right. I mean, there's evidence of great strides in the you know expansion of women's athletic activities, in the expansion in the numbers of women in law schools and medical schools, in the very slow but moving in the right direction integration of uh, the workplace in what used to be referred to as men's jobs and that sort of thing as a result of gender equity and skills training or attempts to enforce that. But there are so many ways in which uh, lack of equity pervades the educational experience that my mother's call for vigilance in 2002 on the 30th anniversary remains the call that we need to remember today. I applaud the student athletes, the students interested in sports who have raised the issue in the state of Hawaii schools. The same issues are being raised across the country by girls who are trying to pursue phys ed and athletic activities. Similar issues that affect equity are being raised across the country with sexual harassment in the educational process. Collateral issues are being raised for pregnant and parenting students and so forth. There's a lot, there's, there are still lots of manifestations of inequality, lots of roadblocks to equity in the schools, but we do have Title IX, which is a powerful lever for redressing those problems. The issue really is that everybody needs to know that Title IX is out there. Everybody needs to know how to access its potential in pursuing complaints and raising issues and the like. And we need to enforce the pledge of equity in education for everyone equally at all levels of schooling. Well, I rem- one of my favorite stories is I think you had mentioned that I think you had wanted to run for class president when you were young. And, and I think a teacher had said, oh, you know, maybe you should run for, for vice president. That was in second grade. I wanted to run for just, you know, the classroom president. The teacher wanted to, I guess, have us all participate in a, in a civic exercise or something like that. So we were having candidates run for office, and I wanted to run for classroom president. I was a little mini-me. You know, I, I was you know, emulating my, my mother and, and so forth as a candidate. And the teacher uh, told me that I couldn't because a boy wanted to be, be president. A boy wanted to run, and he should be the one who got to be elected and that I should be his helpmate uh, as vice president if I wanted to serve. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And out of stories like that, we have Title IX, the law of the land for education equity, thanks to Hawaii's Patsy Mink. We've been hearing from her daughter, Wendy Mink, and historian Judy Wu. Uh, they co-wrote the Patsy Mink biography, Fierce and Fearless. 
Patsy Takemoto Mink, first woman of color in Congress, just published this month. Look for a book signing event June 21st at uh, Maui College and on June 23rd, a portrait unveiling in Washington, D.C., which will be on permanent display at Statuary Hall. Here's an excerpt of Patsy Mink's 1984 speech where she's addressing the Democratic National Convention. The women's agenda is not a special interest agenda. Women's rights are about fundamental justice, not only about laws and court orders, but about the way women are treated and regarded in this country, at the workplace and in the marketplace, and at all levels of economic and political life. Let us women everywhere in America, because we care, create a stampede to the Democratic ballot box in the name of peace, economic justice, and equality, and because our time has finally come. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Summer is around the corner, and with it comes summer book lists. Don't you feel, Jasmine, that like every time you get to pick what to read next, it's just like a little gift to yourself? Yeah, that scholastic book fair feeling, right? It never goes away. Authors Jasmine Guillory and Emma Straub have recommendations next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall Open Daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. As we kick off National Nursing Week, we follow the journey of a local nurse whose ultimate goal is to be a hospital RN. We first met Stephanie in October 2020 during a call-in show about Hawaii's nursing profession. It was perplexing for the recent graduate to not find employment even during a nursing shortage. Here's what Stephanie had to say back then. They had like a survey monkey that came out for people who were looking for positions for the COVID response. So I did that, but I still haven't gotten a call and It is kind of frustrating where we need nurses and we have new grads on island who have been waiting for a job and want to get a job and we don't get contacted. That was aspiring nurse Stephanie, who was on our show a year and a half ago. Producer Lillian Song caught up with the University of Hawaii nursing alum to hear what she's been doing to stay in her chosen profession. I currently work at a private practice. It's an ambulatory surgery center where I do pre-op and also recovery nursing, very, very fast-paced environment. And I actually began that a year and a half ago, so shortly after I finished recording with you guys. Oh, and then you started this job? Yes. Okay. And you've always been in Hawaii? 
I have always been in Hawaii. There was a high school direct entry program for UH Manoa. I actually got into that program. So straight out of high school, I began my nursing program after one year prerequisites where usually you would do two years and try to apply to the nursing program after taking like the entrance exam and whatnot. But I was able to get in straight and had a reserve seat. Very beneficial for me. And mm-hmm. while you were a student at UH, were you being told, like, what are your career options? How do you prepare for a career after graduating? So they kind of just let you know to just make sure to network and do as much community service and volunteer work as much as possible. But otherwise, when you're in nursing school, you try every single type of specialty. But they do focus a lot on med surge, so floor nursing. But you start off doing the basic tasks at, like, a long-term facility. And then you would kind of just move on to med surge, advanced med surge, and then pediatrics, OB. And then you would get placed into your senior rotation where, for me, it was actually in endoscopies, so doing like colonoscopies, EGDs. And that was following my summer internship in the operating room. So everything kind of just fit in place for me for surgery type of work. So walk me through what happens after graduation. So after graduation, you need to prepare for your nursing board. So that's called the NCLEX. So that one you can take whenever after you graduate, but I scheduled it immediately after so that I don't forget anything. Mm. And then UH has a very good pass rate. So usually we're at 100%, which means obviously UH prepares us very well. For me, I did pass on the first try and then applied immediately to new grad positions. If you're just extremely unlucky or don't have experience or if you don't have connections it is very challenging to get a new grad position. So most people actually tend to go to the mainland to get two years of experience and then come back and they're able to get a job immediately. At least half or three-fourths of my classmates moved to Seattle to get a position. So a lot of them already had their sights set on just leaving and coming back later or just leaving and staying away. For me, I didn't really want to leave the islands, and I did work at a hospital already during nursing school, so I thought that would kind of get me in the door. Unfortunately, it didn't. And even now, I don't work in a hospital. I work in a private practice. So I would still have difficulty getting a job in the hospital. This is surprising for us on the outside. We keep hearing about how Hawaii is short on nurses. I mean, you heard about how they had to fly in those traveling nurses. Mm -hmm. So for you, you made a point of staying in Hawaii. What Mm -hmm. is the barrier to being able to get a position as a nurse in a Hawaii hospital? Unfortunately, it's just kind of a known thing. So despite Hawaii having a nursing shortage, they would rather take people with experience. So even though there are new grad programs and they're going to pay to train a nurse, to get their feet in the door and just get all their skills in place. Unfortunately, they don't do it a lot as much as the mainland. So if you don't have experience, they're not going to take you. Or if you have experience outside of a hospital, they still may not take you. So they would rather take travel nurses or people who have gone to the mainland and returned or internal people who have worked from the bottom and made their connections and then the managers can pull them in kind of how it's just well known in Hawaii just most people do tend to leave and come back 
So working now about a year and a half in private practice, is this your mm-hmm. way of putting in that experience so you can apply to work at a Hawaii hospital? So despite having a year and a half of experience in a private practice, it's not considered an acute care facility. So it's still very challenging to get an RN position in the hospital. I have a higher chance now that I actually have RN experience, but unfortunately, since it's not in a hospital specifically, they still may not take me and I would still have to get two years of experience in a hospital, which of course is hard to get if they're not going to take you. And for you, your ultimate goal though is to work in the hospital. Is there another way that you can get into the hospital if not the nursing route? Yeah, so what I actually did is I got another job to work as a tech in the emergency room. So I'm doing that full time so that my chances of getting pulled internally would be higher. Because from what I understand is if you're doing like a per DM position or like a call-in position in the hospital, they may not prioritize you. But if you have a little bit more hours and you're like a regular employee, they may prioritize you better. And then the more connections I make, of course, with the floor and my managers and whatnot, the higher chance that they'll be like, oh, you're already a nurse with experience and you've been working for us. We can see your work ethic. Um, We like the way you work with our team, and then they can help you come into the program that way. So that's kind of my plan as of right now. Well, right now, how do you feel looking forward? How are you feeling for the rest of 2022? I actually have pretty high hopes that I'll be getting an RM position in the hospital sometime soon. The reason I got this new job was because I happened to meet the manager I work for, she pulled me into the system and told me if I do this, then she can help me get into an RM position. So just keeping my head up, working as a tech and also working at the surgery center when I can, and just kind of going from there. Okay, what do you say for you know the upcoming nurses who are just going through the program? What sort of wisdom would you want to share with them? Just to make sure to be the best you could on the floor to make the best impression because if a manager doesn't like you as a student, they will remember how you acted when you do show up in the hospital and they may reject you. So just to make as many connections as you can, be the best student you can, ask as many questions as you can and take initiative to complete as many tasks as you can and show that you want to learn and you want to be a good nurse, then at least you have that for you, and then hopefully that'll benefit you. That was Stephanie, who was working as a private practice nurse. She was talking with HPR's Lillian Song. National Nurses Week kicks off today and runs through May 12th, which is Florence Nightingale's birthday. It's with deep appreciation that we salute our nurses for their tireless commitment as they care for our families and our community. That is it for this Aloha Friday. 
Coming up next week, Representative Ed Case will join us for a call-in show. You can call our talkback line, record a question. That's 808-792-8217. Or uh, call us live. You can also post your questions on the Conversation HPR or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also listen back to our shows on the Conversation page of the HPR website. Our program produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Sobiono, and Lillian Song. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.